They are two nearly unthinkable tragedies. One that may result in a greater good, the other, who knows? We'll start in California, where the raging wildfires have claimed a number of racehorses at a well-known training facility. Then, the injury and death to Kentucky Derby winner Barbaro. Will the information gleaned by caring for him help find a cure for the condition that killed him? A decade later, it could be. We'll have all that and more next here on In the Gate. They're in the gate! They're in the gate! In the gate! They're in the gate! It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. You can get us on the iTunes store and TuneIn.com. You can also get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. You can go through all the statistics you want. Six wildfires in Southern California, scorching approximately 140,000 acres and affecting over 200,000 residents. Close to 9,000 firefighters are battling these blazes. But statistics don't tell the real story here. What really matters are the lives that have been devastated by these fires, human lives and equine lives. The focus of our podcast here is San Luis Rey Downs in the town of Bonsall, just east of Camp Pendleton and about 30 miles north of Del Mar. San Luis Rey was in the path of the Lilac Fire, so named because it started just north of Lilac Road in nearby Pala Mesa, just west of Interstate 15. The fire moved so fast towards San Luis Rey that there wasn't enough time to lead to safety the roughly 450 racehorses stabled there. There were a number of heroic individuals who tried to save the horses by turning them loose from their barns so they wouldn't be trapped. One of those whose heroism saved a number of horses was trainer Martin Balak, whose brother-in-law Remy runs the North American Racing Academy, the jockey school in Lexington, and whose father-in-law was the legendary daily racing form cartoonist Pierre Balak, known as Peb. Martine suffered second- and third-degree burns over 50% of her body and was placed in a medically-induced coma for two days. At the time of our taping, Martine Balak was awake but still on a respirator, unable to speak or see, though her husband and training partner Pierre Balak Jr. says she can still hear. Another hero is groom Leo Tapia. A video he posted to Facebook Live shows Leo and other grooms frantically trying to free the horses from their barns so they could run away from the fire. Not all of the horses made it, and several more, as of the time of this taping, are still unaccounted for. An absolutely unthinkable situation. One of those who escaped reasonably unscathed, thank goodness, is two-time Kentucky Derby-winning trainer Doug O'Neill, who has horses stabled at San Luis Rey. And a shaken but optimistic Doug O'Neill joins us here on In the Gate. How are you guys doing? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's really, really um, just a lot of heavy hearts, and it's really um, emotional uh, right now. And, you know, fortunately, we, we had no uh, horses pass away, and, and all uh, horses are accounted for, but 
unfortunately, a lot of people can't say that. So just trying to, uh, the whole crew is just trying to be there for all the people that are, you know, in, in much uh, darker places than me. Were you there on Thursday the 7th when this fire ripped through San Luis Rey? I was not, you know. I I, uh, I got a call from Leandro Mora, my assistant, and he said, you know, he commented about how there was a fire on the hill and that just, you know, couldn't believe it. There was a fire so close, but no one even thought that it would reach the training center. And honestly, I mean, it, it seemed like within a couple hours, it was like right on top of and, uh, and then at that point, it was within minutes that it was spreading crazily. Have you ever encountered a situation where the best option was to let horses loose out of the barn and onto the track or turf course? No, never. And, you know, it was really one of those split-second decisions because uh, time was running out. And, yeah, it never really seems like a good idea to let a horse out of a stall and run loose. I mean, it just seems such a dangerous thing in so many ways but Leandro was asking me about it I, I was like oh, Leandro you gotta go with your gut you're there you do what you think is right and you know I, I think once he saw a barn down the hill from us catch fire that's when he said you know what the, we can't wait on bands and stuff we gotta just get these horses out of here just for fear that our barn catches on fire so he's the one who made the executive decision and, and even though at the end of the day I our row of barns was fortunate enough to not have burned down. I think letting them out was the right move with the environment that, that was going on. Now, you drive around Southern California shuttling amongst Santa Anita, Los Al, San Luis Rey, and now Del Mar for some people whose horses have been brought there. What does it look like? How can you describe what it's like driving around seeing these hills as they are? It's eerie. It's really eerie. You know, a bunch of us in the barn uh, have gone back to San Luis Rey a couple of times, and the only way we can get in there is through being on a horse trailer. You know, going in the California Highway Patrol. If, if you uh, if you're in a horse van, you know they know you're doing some good. They'll they'll let you through. But otherwise, yeah, they're not letting anyone through. And there's still fires as we speak on the side of the hills around there. So it's really uh, eerie. It's something you never you know, uh, really think about. And uh, you think it's going to be way far off on the hills somewhere, but uh, so close to the barns and homes and, and everyday lives of people you don't think are going to be affected by wildfires. But here we are. Do you know anyone else who has suffered personally? Oh, God, Joe Herrick, who's a tremendous horseman and a good friend. I don't know exactly what happened, but God, he, he had nine horses in his barn, I think eight of them passed away and he himself through fighting for his horses and then trying to keep the situation away from harm and his horses he uh uh had second or third degree burns on his shoulders and arms and he's in the hospital as well so yeah those are the two that are really really everyone's praying for and pulling for and you know all the connections i mean these horses are are family so you just can only imagine how they're dealing with that it's uh it's a tough tough deal fire was all around them and uh, they had no idea if they were going to make it or not and, and uh, just the heroic actions of them to try to save those horses first and, and put themselves second I, I think there's a lot of people there now what kind of 
contingency plans, not necessarily for this, but just in case of any emergency, what kind of contingency plans do trainers like you have with your staff? Uh, you know what? I, we're winging it. Um, again, fortunately, you know, we've got some horses that are hurt but have survived, but all the staff, they all made it out okay, and so we've all just, thank God that Del Mar has stepped up to the plate and so many volunteers and so many amazing fellow horse lovers have volunteered and offered so much. And so we've relocated to Delmar and, um, you know, a lot of these people have places near San Luis Rey down that they can't get back into. So, you know, all their belongings and, you know, from blankets to clothes and everything is gone. So, um, I was at Delmar and to see the loads of people bringing in clothes and food and blankets and mattresses and pretty, um, emotional to, to see people step up the way they, they have and want to help. So it's, it's that, that end of it has been one of the few bright spots in this whole, whole thing. In the long term, and it's probably too early necessarily to, to assess this, but what kind of long-term impact will this situation have on racing in Southern California? Ooh, I don't know. I, you know, it's uh, San Luis Downs is such an amazing facility and, you know, they house 500 horses and it's going to be dearly missed. Hopefully no one's even talked about it, but I, I keep thinking, you know, maybe within six months or so, it'll be back up to uh, being open for training, but that's absolutely a guess. It might never be open. I don't know, but I think it's going to put a real um, damper on, uh, on so many things. I mean, you got a lot of guys with five, 10 horses that lost a horse or two, lost all their equipment. I mean, when you're talking about saddles and bridles and all the equipment that you have to use to care for these amazing horses, it's expensive. It ain't cheap. So for the smaller trainers especially, that's going to be a huge burden. And, and I know Delmar and, and Frank Stranick and, and others have put together a GoFundMe page, and hopefully as that money comes in, it'll be to help the smaller trainers uh, recoup and get equipment that they so desperately need to uh, serve their, their horses again. So it'll be interesting. Are these fires near your home, near the homes of your staff or other people you know? They're not near where I, well, actually, I take that back. I live in the western part of Los Angeles, and yeah, we had a, a fire just north of us, and then about an hour north of us in Ventura, there was still raging fire, so it's, it has just been so crazy with the amount of fires all over the state, and um how many people it's affected, and the air quality is still questionable uh, all up and down the coast. A beautiful state of California is definitely uh, getting punched in the gut in, in many ways uh, the last week or so. Well, Godspeed to you and your horses, your staff, and those of everyone else in Southern California, and thank you so much for a few minutes. Our thoughts, our fingers and toes and hair follicles are all crossed for you. You're the best. Hey, thank you so much. We've spent time on this show talking about horse fatalities from which no greater good will likely come. But when we come back, we'll tell you about the significant strides vets have taken in treating laminitis a decade after the heart-wrenching death of Kentucky Derby winner Barbaro from the condition. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. 
Here comes Barbaro, and he's charging hard to the outside, and they turn for home in the Kentucky Derby. Barbaro comes roaring off the turn, opens up by three, with three sixteenths to run now. His entry made up the inside, showing up still in the second spot, joined by Bluegrass Cat, who's plugging away down to the final furlong, though, and it's all Barbaro. Barbaro in front by five, very impressive. Barbaro and Edgar Prado rolling on to win Kentucky Derby 132. He was an undefeated, charisma-filled Kentucky Derby winner. He was trained by a charming ex-Olympic equestrian silver medalist who tugged at our hearts when we learned he'd saved three children in a plane crash 17 years earlier. But two weeks after that rousing run for the Roses... And they're off in the 131st Freakness. Diabolical trying to get over to save some ground. Oh, Barbaro! Barbaro has pulled up in the opening furlong. Barbaro rank has been pulled up into the turn. No triple crown winner this year. And Barbaro has been pulled up uh, just before the first turn. We watched in horror as Barbaro took a misstep shortly after the start of the second jewel of the triple crown, the Preakness, and suffered a broken hind leg. Fans stood vigil most notably at Belmont Park three weeks after his injury, where cards and letters and get-well notes were made into a massive tribute to their fallen hero. Barbaro fought for seven months, but when a horse cannot put equal weight on all four legs, he runs the risk of tearing away the hoof wall of the leg or legs he favors. That's called laminitis, and in Barbaro's case, it was ultimately fatal. He died in January of 2007, just over a decade ago. When Barbaro died at the New Bolton Center for Large Animals in Pennsylvania, the lead doctor on his team, Dean Richardson, said that veterinarians and scientists would learn a lot from the on-the-fly research they had done to learn about laminitis with the hope of saving Barbaro. We did a podcast in 2012, one of our first, at the five-year anniversary, asking where that research and the results from it stood but there was not much to say at that time. Now, just past the 10-year mark, there seems to be a lot more to say. And here to share that knowledge is Dr. Andrew Van Epps, who is an associate professor of equine musculoskeletal research at the New Bolton Center, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania. And we welcome Dr. Van Epps here to win the gate. Now, first of all, how is it that with all the scientific advancement in so many areas of medicine and research in this day and age... We did not know all that much about a condition that is so prevalent in a high-profile sport like horse racing. Right. I mean, it comes down to a few different things. One is um, it's a very difficult disease to study for a couple of reasons. What it is, in essence, it's, it's failure of the tissue that attaches the bone to the inside of the hoof. And uh, when that tissue fails, the bone kind of sinks uh, down within the hoof and it's it's an unrecoverable event you know it's a, it's a problem that is very difficult to to manage the issue is trying to study that tissue and it's it's kind of like if you look down at your own fingernail it's the tissue it's similar to the tissue that attaches your fingernail to, to your finger trying to study that tissue is difficult because it's difficult to get at it's difficult to instrument or uh, or sample in in a, in a way that's non-invasive i guess to the animals. So studying this disease, it's logistically, uh, 
I guess, very difficult. And if we just study natural cases, we, we tend to be studying things that are too far gone and, and too far past the point where we can actually learn anything. So it's difficult from a logistical standpoint to apply a lot of the, you know, the advancements that we have in, in medicine and in science, although uh, that is actually what, what has been happening in the last five to ten years is that we have actually been beginning to apply a lot of the molecular techniques and uh, a lot of the more advanced imaging type techniques that uh, we have available. And, and because of that, we are actually getting answers. But the, the number two thing is, is funding. So, you know, in terms of complexity, this problem is akin to something like, like cancer, yet we don't have billions of dollars um, to apply to this problems we have. We have more like thousands of dollars to put it in perspective. So, and there are also a very limited number of people around the world who are studying this problem. So, I guess that's why progress is slow. It's interesting you mentioned cancer because, as we all know, there are many different types of cancer, and apparently there are many different kinds of laminitis. For the layperson, can you explain those differences? Yeah, so, you know, and that has been, I guess, one of the big things that has helped us. Our knowledge is actually accepting and starting to investigate the different forms of, of laminitis for what they are and, you know, mechanistically quite different. So, you know, a horse like Barbaro, who had a, had a painful injury in his limb, in his case, he, he got the problem because he's bearing too much weight on that, on that individual limb and probably not cycling off it enough. In that form of laminitis, we have good evidence now that it's a blood flow problem. So horses seem to rely heavily on shifting weight on and off their limbs in order to make sure that enough blood gets down into that into that tissue that connects the, the bone to the hoof. And in a case like his, they just don't seem to cycle their weight on and off that leg enough. And there's a failure of enough blood flow and the tissue runs out of nutrients and then it, it in essence, uh, fails because of that. The most common form of laminitis that we see worldwide tends to be in horses and ponies that are overweight, and that's very similar to a situation like type 2 diabetes in people where people are overweight and produce too much insulin. And in the case of people, we tend to run out of insulin and become diabetic. In the case of horses and ponies, they just keep producing more and more insulin, and it it's uh, the insulin itself that actually affects the lamella tissue and gives them laminitis. And that has been a discovery that um, has been very important in the last decade. And we're now, in that form of laminitis, really narrowing down on exactly why insulin causes the damage in the tissue. And we're, we're getting very close to being able to uh, specifically block that damage from happening, but we're already very good now clinically at identifying horses that are and ponies that are at high risk of that form of laminitis and preventing it from happening in the first place. And probably the holy grail in that form is going to be identifying horses and ponies genetically that are predisposed and either breeding away from the problem or using that information to intervene uh, very early. The last form of the disease that is important is the type that happens secondary to systemic sickness or, or illness, and that's the sort of horse that has an infection, a pneumonia, a, 
uh, colitis or some sort of septic problem and then develops it and it can be quite severe and come on quite quickly in that situation and that form painter is a is a horse that stands out he had a colitis and, and developed that form of the disease in that case we we still don't 100 know why that form occurs and it's very similar to uh, in human sepsis you get problems um, secondary and they tend to affect the lung or the kidneys or or the gut and in their case they also are not sure why it occurs but uh, in our case we can actually prevent that form of the disease just by cooling the feet and that's been something that has been researched that i've done uh, over the last 15 years first we we identified that it worked and now we're actually narrowing down on on why exactly it works uh, to this day still trying to refine it so that we can perhaps more specifically block events so that form of the disease is preventable so literally cooling a horse's feet will help with a blood disease like sepsis causing laminitis uh, and there's also good evidence nowadays in in models of human sepsis mostly in in rats and mice that if you cool the whole body, you can prevent secondary problems like acute lung injury in that situation. But it's a lot easier to cool a foot uh, than it is to cool a whole body. So we're, we're at somewhat of an advantage. So we can reliably prevent uh, laminitis and we can also ameliorate it and um, prevent progression in a horse that already has it uh, when it's happened secondary to sepsis like that. Dr. Andrew Van Epps of the New Bolton Center for Large Animals at the University of Pennsylvania joins us here on In the Gate. Now, you mentioned what horses might be genetically predisposed to this. Have you noticed any trends in who or how laminitis develops? Say, for example, horses that run on dirt versus turf, North America versus Europe, since the bloodlines are largely, though not totally, different, or any other trends like that? From a genetic standpoint, it's probably more breed specific so the first work that's been done this is really early days but the first work that's been done has been in in arabian horses and in arabian horses there are specific genes that can be linked to high insulin production and the development of laminitis now in race horses standardbreds and thoroughbreds during their training years that sort of insulin mediated form of laminitis doesn't seem to be important but perhaps it does seem to be important when they get into, particularly into the breeding years in stallions and in broodmares. So, yeah, there's not been work done on that specifically yet, but that's something uh, potentially for the for the future. And you mentioned track surfaces. What I would say is that particularly the, the one form of, there's, there's probably a fourth form of laminitis that, that we don't really see much these days, and that's what we used to call road founder, which was, typically horses working on hard surfaces um, over long periods of time. And interestingly, you, you see it occasionally still in, in Amish cart horses and, and, and in some other situations. But quite subtly, uh, when you look at a lot of foot specimens from horses that have raced on the track, then thoroughbred do see subtle uh, and early signs that they have low-grade laminitis that, that's very mild, and that can just be a change the sort of morphology of the of the tissue down there and i do want how important that is in terms of 
foot soreness and performance in horses on the racetrack. And I do get the impression that we see it a bit more in standard bred horses and we tend to race on some quite hard tracks, you know, just to complicate it a little bit more. Uh, you know, it may be that there is a component of that sort of impact or uh, repeated concussion damage uh, in some of these racehorses. So with the type of laminitis that Barbaro had, where he was compensating for the broken leg by stepping mainly on the other three and you had the weight balance issue, what is being learned to help this common yet very serious problem? So recently we have established that when horses put too much weight on a limb like that for a period of time that it interferes, it does interfere with with the blood flow. And we have looked at a lot of different ways of uh, enhancing blood flow in a horse that is preferentially bearing weight or too much weight on one limb. It looks at this point like the only way to enhance blood flow in that situation is to actually increase the number of times they're cycling uh, their weight off the limb. So ways to do that, I guess, um, are uh, logistically difficult, but we currently are working with some engineers to develop some systems to provide partial intermittent weight relief off individual limbs, which I think is probably going to be uh, the answer. The other thing that's important is is to actually look at when horses are not cycling their their weight from one leg to the other frequently enough. And to, to do that, we need to have ways of monitoring how frequently they are doing it. And again, we, at the moment, developing methods that are both video-based and accelerometer-based, so sensor-based on the limb to tell us when a clinical patient is not cycling load frequently enough. And in those cases, it may be as simple as intervening from a nursing standpoint and getting them to, to move a little bit more if, if, if that's feasible. But in the future, the, the ideal answer is going to be some sort of mechanical device that enables us to get partial and intermittent weight relief off an individual limb. What do you think is the next potential breakthrough in our knowledge of laminitis? I would say that, I'd, and I'll put in a plug for my collaborator, Professor Jim Belknap from Ohio State University. Uh, I've been working with him for more than 10 years, and he his lab concentrates on identifying the different cellular molecular signals that are going on in the tissue and the different forms of laminitis. And he has some really exciting information that perhaps even links all the different types of laminitis together through a specific pathway. And the really exciting thing about that pathway is that it, it can be blocked with a drug treatment. So uh, we have a grant proposal that's in the works and hopefully might get funded. And if successful, I think that this may be a really exciting development. So that's probably what I'd say is specifically most exciting at the moment to me. Now, you were part of that team back in 2006 at New Bolton that tried so hard to help Barbaro. What do these types of developments mean to you personally? Well, that was uh, 
I was a trainee resident at that time, and you know we we truly didn't didn't have much of an idea about the different types of laminitis would were mechanistically different. It was a very helpless feeling uh, at that point because you almost felt like there was an inevitability in a horse like that that he would develop the problem and we wouldn't be able to help him. You know, I, I think for me that was the start of my interest in pursuing research on supporting limb laminitis and that's continued through to now and I for me personally I I feel like you know it's almost serendipitous that that I was there at that time and now I'm I'm back at New Bolton you know I I feel like we we've, we've made significant progress in 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 confirming why this is happening and now I really feel like we are close to being able to prevent it clinically and and uh you know that that's really got to be the goal it wasn't until the death of Dale Earnhardt in 2001 that real substantive change in race car safety came about. It's taken Barbaro to do the same for horse racing, but it does seem like improvements are on the way. Dr. Andrew Van Epps, thank you so much for a few minutes and continued good luck in researching this all-important problem. Thanks, Barry. Nice to talk to you. And if you are interested in supporting this laminitis research, you can contact the Grayson Jockey Club Research Foundation, which is the nonprofit organization that's funded much of this work through their competitive research grant scheme. Go to www.grayson-jockeyclub.org. Our thanks to Dr. Andrew Van Epps and to Doug O'Neill. It isn't often horse racing's a microcosm for the dynamics going on across our land. But the issue of the takeout rate that's been debated hotly could be quite the harbinger. For on one hand, there are those who think that racetracks should lower the takeout rate, the commission that the track makes from each bet. They say that returning more money into the hands of the bettors will be wagered again so track owners need not fret. That's a very Republican way to look at the horse racing economy, but Keeneland has approached it the other way. It's raised its takeout rates to draw more money from each bet, the Democrats' method, a more directed pay. With people thinking politics like they never have before, every move we make is scrutinized and then some. So the question of the takeout rate may be more than meets the eye. It might just be a national referendum. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes store. You can get us on TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.